Today we're going to continue on our series, The Parables of Jesus. Today we're going to look at, at the parable of the shrewd manager. This parable is actually a fairly it's difficult, it's the right word or not, but it's a parable. Remember, parables are stories that don't have to be true in the sense that they happened. A parable is a teaching device. It's like a preacher story when the preacher talks about little Billy and little Susie in Sunday school and they make up a story, right? Same thing, same idea. A parable is, it can be true in the sense that it happened or it can just be a, it's a didactic tool. It's used a tool used for teaching purposes. And I think the one today, it's going to be very obvious that that's what Jesus is doing, is creating a story to teach a lesson. Because there's some difficult details in the story. This, this parable can be interpreted many different ways. And so if I, you get done with the day and you think, well, I don't know if that's what was right. I, I could be wrong. It's happened before. and It'll happen again, I promise. So today we're going to look at the parable of the shrewd manager. It's actually in Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 16, starting in verse 1 begins, like most of these stories do, right? Jesus is telling a story. So, verse 1 says this, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. This is a fairly common thing in, in Israel during this time, was people who would own property or own farms, they might not be at that farm or that property all the time, so they would put a servant or a slave in charge of the estate, and their job was to manage it, to make sure everything ran smoothly, hiring, firing, making sure all the, the bills are paid, money is managed appropriately. In the story, we have a wealthy man who probably isn't present, who probably lives somewhere else, who finds out that the, the person he put in charge, the servant or the slave, has not been doing a very good job. Right? So the manager, the rich man has accused the manager of wasting the rich man's possessions, saying, you're not doing this well. Now, we don't have the details of that. We don't know exactly what's happening. Maybe he just isn't doing his job properly, or maybe it's even worse. Maybe he's being dishonest. Uh, as you're going to see in the story, there's a good chance that possibly the manager is being accused of, of stealing from the rich man. Who Maybe he's, he's kind of cooking the books and putting money into his own pocket. We're not exactly sure, but it would seem to fit as we go about the story. You'll kind of see that. So the rich man calls the manager in. And ask them, okay, what is this I'm hearing about you? I'm hearing that you aren't doing a very good job, or I'm hearing that you're stealing, that things aren't, the, the, the books aren't adding up. Give an account for your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. He says, I'm taking the job from you, so I need you to, to give me what you've done, what, what, what bills have been paid, what bills need to be paid, who owes what, where, when, why, how, right? This man has managed everything, so the rich man has no idea the state in which his his estate essentially is in. And so he needs the manager to give him this and says, no more, right? We can't, you can't be doing this anymore. It's time for you to find something else to do. So Jesus tells us in this story, in verse 3, that the manager says to himself, uh-oh. I mean, that's, I'm paraphrasing that, obviously. What's the manager say? What am I going to do? What am I, how am I going to make a living? I'm going to survive. So he says to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. He says, "Uh uh-oh. I can't can't be a laborer anymore. I have the back for it. We've all made that realization at some point, right, that we can't do what we at once could do. So this poor man, it happens right now, realizes I'm not good at digging holes anymore. Can't do it. I really would not, I prefer not to have to go and beg. For a living. Too much pride for that. And so he con- concocts a plan in verse 4. 
comes up with an idea. He says, I know what I'll do. He says, when I lose my job, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure I can make a future for myself. So he says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job, here people will welcome me into their houses. So he's going to come up with a plan. Now, this isn't the first parable where we've saw someone come up with a plan. If you remember the, the parable of the three lost things, or a prop, the, 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 the last parable in that series of, is the parable of the three lost, or the two lost sons, or the parable of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son goes away, blows through all of dad's money. What happens? Sitting there feeding pigs, you remember the story? And he thinks to himself, what am I doing? My, my dad's servants at home are living better than I live. I'm going to go home. I'm going to say, dad, I'm sorry. I sinned against you. I sinned against the family. Just make me one of your servants, right? He makes this plan in his head. This is what I'm going to do when I get there. S- similar situation going on here. He has a plan. I'm going to, here's my plan. So here, here's the plan. Verse 5, 6, and 7. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. But there probably are. There are probably people who have leased, who leased the property to raise crops from the, from the master, right? It's probably what in an agri- agriculture-based economy like Israel was. It's probably what happened is these guys were farmers. They, they, they leased the land, so they have to pay back some of their harvest to the master. So he calls in each one of his master's debtors. He asks the first, how much do you owe my master? Question. If you're a good manager, would you maybe know that answer? <laughs> right? It's like the bank coming to you on your house. Being, how much do you owe on your house? And you're like, oh, I think it's like 100 bucks. I think it was something like that, right? I mean, really. What, that's a terrible manager. What would you say? Like your credit card calls you. Hey, we, we lost your bill. How much do you owe us? You're like, oh, I think I paid that last month, right? I mean, really? What is, what is going on? He should know that information. That should be what he knows. He should know that. The only person on planet Earth who knows that 100% should be him. So tell us that he isn't maybe the greatest employee ever. Probably not getting an employee of the month, right? That's why he's being fired. How much do you owe my master? So the guy could totally lie to him if he wants to. He says, well, I owe him 900 gallons of olive oil. Manager told him, "Good, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it for 150 for for four for uh, 450. Cut her in half, right?" So goes the second person in verse seven. How much do you owe? Well, a thousand bushels of wheat. He replied. Told them, "Take your bill, make it 800." What's he doing? He's dealing. He's making a little bargain here, right? Now this is where the story gets murky for some. I believe, if you, if, as we follow the story, you're going to see that I believe he's being dishonest, right? He's, he's ripping off the master is what he's happening. Now, people argue that maybe the master had applied interest, which in Israel should have been illegal. If you remember the Old Testament, it told that you can't charge interest when you loan to a, to a fellow Israelite. There's that argument that can be made. I, I don't know that that's it. Because as you're going to see in this next section, the Bible kind of describes for us what this shrewd manager is doing. And I don't think he's being honest. Now, remember that when we come to this, because this is what makes this parable difficult, is what Jesus says about the manager. Right? That's what makes the, the, it hard. Because look what happens in verse 8. So the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, you read that story, you think to yourself, well, what? Why would the, the master is getting the short end of the stick, is he not? And that's the part, verse 8 is the part that makes this parable very interesting. Because you think to yourself, well, Jesus certainly isn't saying, be dishonest, lie, right? I mean, the rest of Jesus' teachings point very clearly that he wants us to be moral people. So Jesus certainly isn't telling us to go about and lie. We have to read this whole parable in context to really understand it, and we're going to get there. But just remember that the master actually commends the, 
the dishonest manager because of his, his acting shrewdly. And this is what Jesus says in the second half of verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now remember who Jesus is telling this story to. If we go back to verse 1, Luke tells us that Jesus is telling this story to his disciples. So remember that as we go through the story, that Jesus is giving advice to his closest followers about how they ought to live in the world. And remember, Jesus' time is running out on planet Earth. And so he's giving them an idea of how they're going to have to operate in this world. This, this parable, it's hard. I spent a lot of hours thinking about this parable, trust me. Okay? He says, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Of course, the disciples would be people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It's fascinating, isn't it? Jesus says, use your worldly wealth. Now remember, most of his disciples are, aren't wealthy. They don't have much. So he says, I want you to take what you have, whatever worldly wealth you have, and I want you to use it to gain friends. What's the shrewd manager doing? The shrewd manager realized, I can't dig. I don't want to beg. So the people who owned his, owed his master money, he acted shrewdly with them, made a deal so that, what? When he got fired, they'd welcome him in. Jesus is saying the lying part isn't the part we're trying to get to here. It's, it's how you use your wealth, you use your gifts, your talents, your abilities for the kingdom. I think that's the point. It isn't about how being dishonest. Jesus certainly doesn't want us to be dishonest. It's about how we use our wealth, what God has given us now, and, and place it on deposit in eternity. So Jesus is telling them, I want you to use whatever wealth you have, whatever influence you have for God. Because God will reward you in a way in which your earthly wealth just never can. It can't do it. And look what he says in verses 10, 11, and 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. He said, if I can trust you with a little bit, I can actually trust you with a lot. If you're, if you're faithful in the little I gave you, then I can give you even more and still trust you. And so he says, whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Here he's clearly telling us that the dishonest part was not the part of the shrewd manager that he, he wanted us to emulate, right? He says, if you're going to lie about something small, you'll probably lie about something big. And if you're if a person who's dishonest and you're a person who lie, people will not trust you. They're not going to. Verse 11, he says, So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? What does Jesus think about the wealth that we find and accumulate now? It tells us that it's not the actual wealth we should be pursuing, right? He says the wealth that you accumulate now isn't really riches. People might look at you and think, oh man, look at all the stuff that they have. But that's not what the goal of life is. That's not what it's all about. We saw last week, we looked at the, 
of the, of the parable that kind of bummed us out, didn't it? Parable of the rich man. Rich man has a great harvest. His decision to do what? He couldn't cram all his stuff in his barns, so what's he decide to do? Build bigger barns. And what is with Jesus? What was the point of that parable last week? Jesus said, your life's demand you that night. You're not going to enjoy those big barns because all you did was accumulate, 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 and you were never a blessing to anyone else. And Jesus is telling us that if, he, if we can't be trusted with what God's given us here, our worldly wealth, how can he trust us with what matters the most? Eternal life. Which is eternal wealth, isn't it? If we can't be trusted with what God's given us here, how can he trust us with more? And this part of this parable is designed to a specific group of people. And you're going to see that in 13, 14, and 15. Verse 12, I think, is pointing at that group of people even more. It says, And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And then he says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is saying, pick your riches. Which way are you going? Are you going to be rich in wealth here or rich in God here and forever? Because our wealth that we accumulate now has an end, doesn't it? Has an end. And someone else, if you hoard enough of it for long enough, someone else gets to spend it when you die. That's just kind of how that goes. Or you can use it, Jesus is saying, you can use that wealth now to impact eternity. To impact forever. Put it to work now for God. And God will reward you now and then. And look at verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, it's that group that Jesus loves to pick on, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. I want to go back for a second and look at verse 10, 11, and 12. Now that you know who the group I believe Jesus is talking about, who they are. The Pharisees are part of the religious leaders of their day. Their job is to point other people to God. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, doesn't believe they're doing that at all sometimes or very well to be nice. If there's any group that Jesus is the hardest with in the Gospels, it's the, it's the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so look at verse 10, 11, and 12 in the context of, is he speaking to his disciples now, or is he speaking to the Pharisees now? Whoever can be trusted with very little can be also trusted with much. Jesus' disciples have very little of what? They have very little wealth. The Gospel tells us that Jesus didn't even have a home. Right? He had no place to lay his head. He just traveled around preaching the good news, healing, doing the miraculous. Wealth wasn't all that important to Jesus. His disciples are the same. So Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little, his disciples, can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Who's he talking about there? Yeah, that's not his disciples anymore. It's the Pharisees. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, Who's wealthy? Pharisees. Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property 
of your own. The Pharisees were supposed to be entrusted with God's property, weren't they? A message of hope, love, compassion, and mercy, drawing other people to God, and they had failed miserably in large part. And so that's what makes Jesus' words in verse 13, 14, and 15 so cutting, doesn't it? Because he is accusing the Pharisees of serving two masters. And he says, you're serving one more than the other. And who are they serving more? And by verse 14, it tells us that Jesus believes the Pharisees have, chased, have lost their point of existence and are chasing after wealth now and have lost sight of wealth in eternity. And if you turn the TV on right now, like literally right now, you will find preachers on TV who have done the same thing. Who are going to ask you to send them a check. Who fly around the world in private jets and expensive suits. And who have lost sight of what the importance of God's message has always been. And you might like to watch those preachers. That's fine. But I'm just telling you right now, those people have gone so far astray from God that they don't know which way's up anymore. And if you're worried about with your mode of transportation or the, how much the clothes you wear cost, you have lost sight of the gospel. It has never been and will never be about that. I don't care how many books you write or how many people fill that church, it doesn't matter. If you've lost sight of the gospel, what's the point? Our job isn't to store up physical wealth now. It's to store up a heavenly treasure for then. It's to be a blessing to other people. Not see how much money we can spend on junk that's going to go away, that doesn't last, no matter how flashy or shiny it is. Our job is to store up treasures for God in heaven. So Jesus is saying, you've got to serve a master. Who's your master? And brothers and sisters, we might not be Pharisees and we might not be, consider ourselves rich, but we better choose who our master is. Sit down this week and write down how you spend every hour of your day and tell me who your master is. Be straight up with you. If I did it, I'd be the same conclusion you. I spend way too much on me, way too much on accumulating wealth and not enough time on others and God. We only have so many days on planet Earth, don't we? Our time is limited. What are we going to spend it on? And where are we going to store up our treasures? Now, I understand that there are seasons in life where you've got to work overtime, you've got bills to pay. I get it. Understand it. I have three little kids. Understand it. Bills have to be paid. But where is our treasure at? Because those three little kids need God first, don't they? They've always had shoes and clothes and food, but they, I better be giving them something more than just shoes and clothes and food because lots of people can provide that for them, can't they? I better be giving them God and being an influence for them every single day, storing up treasures in heaven because that's where it matters, isn't it? Next week, we get the honor. I get the honor. We're going to baptize at least six of our young people next week. At least. That's the list right now. What's the point? Let's store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Let's invest in them forever. We're going to do even more when it comes summertime. More of them want to be baptized in Mans Creek in the reservoir. So we're going to do some more baptisms there. What's the point? 
People have invested in those kids since they were little children. Their parents, grandparents, friends, aunts, uncles, spiritual grandparents. And now the moment's coming where it pays off. They're taking the next step in their faith saying, I'm with you, God. I'm all in. I'm all in. And we get to share in that. Because people, faithful people, have invested in them for years and years and years. Because they put the hard work in of parenting. Which is just hard work, isn't it? And they've done their job. How in our lives, in your life and my life, can we make sure we're storing up treasures in heaven and not just treasures here? And the answer is the only thing that lasts beyond here is what? Human beings. That's it. Everything, everything else rusts and gets destroyed. I don't care how great it is or how grand it is. The only thing that lasts is you and me. And so we better be investing in the lives of other people if we want that treasure stored up in heaven. Because if we only ever invest in our lives here and now and try to make ourselves as comfortable as possible by accumulating more things, the time comes where people will gather in this church and celebrate our life. And hopefully, it'll be a celebration. It won't be an argument amongst your family members of who gets all your junk or how they're going to pay the auction house to come and auction off all your stuff. Because that's what's going to happen. It's a bummer deal, I know. But your family's going to take what they want and sell the rest of it. It's gone. Who'd you invest in here and now? Because those people, they're not gone. They might leave us here, but when they leave us here, they get to go to the very presence of God. And they last forever. Who's the person that God is asking you to invest in? To say, God, I'm with you. I'm going to store my treasures up with you. Find them and pour your life into them. And if you're a parent, you already have those people. They're already at home with you. They're your kids. If you're a grandparent, guess what? They're right there. Aunt, uncle, brothers and sisters, whoever it is, pour into them because they last forever. Nothing else Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to read this story. While the parable in itself can be somewhat difficult as we navigate through, Father, we, we understand that you want us to serve you and you alone. That we cannot serve more than one master. God, we have to make you the master of our lives. So Father, I pray for those who maybe haven't had that step yet, maybe haven't made that step of faith, of trusting you with everything they have, God, that they might make that decision to trust you put all their faith, their hope, their future in your hands, God. For those of us who have made that decision already, God, we ask that you help us every day to invest in the lives of other people, to not just store up more treasures for ourselves. We have been so richly blessed in this country with stuff that we sometimes miss the point. That's not about the stuff, God. The stuff goes. It's about people we find around us. Help us to invest in them. As parents, those of us who are who have kids at home still, who have kids who have gone. Help us to be, be great mentors and stewards of them and help point them to you, God. For those who are grandparents, who are aunts and uncles, who have nieces and nephews around, help all of us, God, to influence the lives of those around us at work, at home, at school, the grocery store, the basketball game, wherever we find ourselves, God. With our actions first and our words seconds, second, 
put you first in our lives. Show others what it means to love you with everything we have. God, we thank you for your son Jesus, who's offered himself as a sacrifice for us to bring us back into a relationship with you, who on the cross faced pain and torment on our behalf. He took all of our sin away in one faithful act. He was buried and rose back to life three days later, giving each and every one of us the hope of life spent forever with you. It's in his name.